Hi there, it's episode 98. Today, we're talking about sleep. I'm interviewing renowned sleep expert, Dr. Janet Kennedy. And we're talking about the barriers that parents face to getting good sleep. And spoiler alert, it's not just kids waking up in the night. You are listening to the Simple Families Podcast, a Q&A style show that brings you solutions for living well with family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi there, it's Danae. This month on Simple Families, we're talking about finding mindfulness and calm in family. And getting good sleep is such an important part of that. If you'd like to join the focus group where we're talking more in depth about mindfulness, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash March and join us there. Before we dive into today's episode, I have a quick word from our sponsor. The sponsor for this episode is the Canvas People. If you're anything like me, you probably have an overwhelming number of photographs on your phone. Of the thousands that I take every year, only a handful do I really feel compelled to print out and to display in my home. We recently put up a gallery wall in our living room and I was looking to incorporate some photographs into it. So I thought, what better way than a beautiful canvas to integrate our family photos among other pieces of art? If you're looking for something other than just a standard photo frame, or even a gift for a holiday coming up, such as Mother's Day, please take advantage of this special offer. Right now, if you go to canvaspeople.com, you can get a free 11 by 14 canvas. Use the code SIMPLE, and all you're going to pay is shipping and handling. This is a $69 value, and it's something that you're going to treasure forever. So again, go to canvaspeople.com and use the special code SIMPLE, and you'll get your free 11 by 14 canvas. On to today's episode, I'm interviewing Dr. Janet Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy is also known as the New York City Sleep Doctor. You can find her website at nycsleepdoctor.com. And she's also the author of the book, The Good Sleeper. When it comes to infant and child sleep, there are so many different approaches. And what works for my family probably isn't going to work for your family. So I'm not here today to tell you how to get your kid to sleep. What I am here to tell you is the importance of getting your kid to sleep and getting yourself to sleep. Today, Dr. Kennedy and I are talking more about the health and science aspect of sleep and why it's so necessary. I know personally that I don't function well when I haven't had a good night's sleep. It impacts my mood. It impacts my ability to do my job. It impacts my ability to be a parent. So in continuing this month's conversation about finding mindfulness and calm, we can't go without talking about how to improve our sleep habits. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Dr. Kennedy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Of course. Happy to be here. I have a lot of questions for you. And today we're talking more about finding mindfulness and calm, which is the theme of the podcast this month. And I think that sleep is such an important piece of that. It seems these days that parents have all sorts of different ideas and philosophies towards sleep, but something that I hear coming up more and more is this idea that, you know, we'll sleep when they go to college or this expectation that parents just really aren't going to sleep for several years. And I don't necessarily think that that has to be the case. And I know that you work with both children and adults. Could you tell me a little bit more about how you got into this role and about what you do? Sure. Um, I started out working with adults who had sleep disorders when I worked at the Manhattan VA hospital um, in the beginning of my career. And when I started having kids, I did a lot of research just for myself because 
I am someone who doesn't function well without my sleep and was planning to go right back to work after a regular maternity leave and knew that, um, particularly as a psychologist, I wasn't going to be able to do my job if I wasn't sleeping. So I, I learned how to teach my own children to sleep. And in that process, realized that it, you know, a lot of people don't really understand the science of sleep and what how to teach children to sleep and that what you can expect them to do at different ages. And a lot of the information that's out there is really counterintuitive and confusing. So I started to do some consulting with new parents and then formed my own practice to broaden the scope of that, to work with um, parents of young babies um, and toddlers, and then also work with adults in the private sector who are having sleep issues as well. And I think that it's interesting that you mentioned adults, because a lot of times when we think about sleep disorders and sleep issues, we think about children, young children in particular. But after talking with my audience about sleep and some of the concerns that come up, kids waking up in the night is definitely one of those things. And it is one of the barriers that's preventing us as parents from getting a good night's sleep. But there are other things too. I know that a lot of parents struggle with a lack of time and as a result, they, or lack of time to themselves rather. So as a result, they stay up too late. Um, it's hard to pull themselves away from media at night. When I say themselves, I should, should say ourselves <laughs> because I am guilty of it too, staying up too late as sort of an escape and disappearing into technology in the evenings, whether it's Netflix or Facebook or whatever it might be. So I see that coming up a lot. And I also see a lot of parents talking about anxiety problems. So waking up in the night and worrying and having a lot on their minds and having a hard time going back to sleep. So I think that with parents, the sleep issues go beyond just having children waking up in the night. And I feel like we could talk about child and infant sleep issues for days, but I think that it's it's more than that. Do you agree? Absolutely. I see so many parents in my practice um, because once the baby is sleeping, they're coming to me with their own issues. It's often hard to get back on track once you add another whole level of responsibility in your life, let alone, you know, whatever's happening with the child during the night. So yeah, I do think it's really important as parents to get our own sleep on track, both so that we can be the parents that we want to be, because it's very hard to parent when you're exhausted and irritable, and also so that we can be the people we want to be and be well-rounded and engaged in our lives. Um, certainly that applies to mindful living and that how can you be present if anytime you sit still, you're either in a sort of anxious uh, rumble or you're dozing off. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And when I hear parents say, you know, I'll sleep when they're in college, or I don't mind not sleeping, or I don't mind waking up many times in the night, or um, I'm just th those who think that they're just sort of surviving on lack of sleep, I, I feel for them because I know, like you said, Janet, that when even when my kids were very young, they're two and four now, but even at the age that they're at, that sleep disruptions really have such a dramatic effect on my days. And I feel like 
waking up in the night, even if I wake up and I go back to sleep, I don't feel as rested in the morning. And I'm, I'm curious if you could tell me more about this. If you're sleeping straight through the night versus ha- you're, if you're having fragmented sleep where you're waking up multiple times and going back to sleep, how does that affect us as adults and how does it affect kids? Well, first of all, no one sleeps straight through the night. Whether you're aware of it or not, you're waking up multiple times a night. The difference is if you're waking up and having to do something and take care of someone um, versus just waking up and rolling over, repositioning yourself and cycling back into deeper sleep. So the the process of waking up, getting out of bed, fixing somebody else's problem, which is what you're doing as a parent, that creates a a level of alertness and often uh, accompanied by a, a surge of adrenaline because you have to power yourself out of sleep to be responsible. Um, so that that kind of night waking is going to be really disruptive. It takes time to then wind back down, let your body relax, let all of that sort of return to normal and then get yourself back to sleep. It also gives you a huge opportunity for just the stress of the day, anxieties, the to-do lists, all of those intrusions to come in and take root and get you further away from sleep. So obviously the goal is consolidated, consolidated sleep, sleeping you know, seven to eight hours a night with minimal interruption, the kinds of interruptions where you're not even necessarily aware of it. If you have these big chunks missing in the middle of the night, it can lead you to feel horrible the next day. Um, there's all sorts of physical and cognitive repercussions for for chronic sleep deprivation, but it also creates anxiety about your ability to sleep, and that can sort of mushroom into a bigger insomnia problem where once you are awake, it really is very difficult to go back to sleep. Right. And I've experienced that when I wake up at four o'clock in the morning and I am just wide eyed awake and I can't stop thinking about wanting to fall asleep. Right. <laughs> and and that makes it just all the harder to go back to sleep. Well, parents in particular, I find, put a lot of pressure on themselves to to sleep so that they can perform as parents and at work and in every other capacity that they're asking themselves to. Um, It's sort of a heroic level of energy and performance that we ask of ourselves during the day. And that can lead to a lot of performance anxiety around sleep, whether it's in that turns into insomnia at night, at the beginning of the night or in the middle of the night or in the early morning, just kind of depends on the person. So what about the well-intentioned parents who say, you know, I'm a parent during the day and I'm a parent at night and I'm going to be there and I'm going to get up and I'm going to be there for my kids no matter when they need me, however old they are. That my, my hesitation with that attitude, which I think, like I said, is very well-intentioned is that it's sort of expecting that children are going to be waking up until they're I don't know who knows how old and it and, and it makes me question what impact does that have on kids as they get older and they're still having night wakings. Right. Well, two th- I have two reactions to that. The first is that we have to think about how we define needing um, because children as a rule, do not need us in the middle of the night. Occasionally, they will have nightmares. Occasionally, they will have, you know, a stomach virus or some other kind of illness 
and they do need attention. But as a rule, most of the time, they are capable, if allowed, of getting themselves through the night. Um, so that's one. Uh, the, but when you th- when they are accustomed to seeing us and getting help for these minor wakings, they don't learn that skill, how to get back to sleep. And that is something that contributes to a lot of sleep issues later on in life. I see a lot of adults who say, you know, I never learned how to do this because I always went into my parents' bed or, you know, I just, I, I, I would freak out in the middle of the night and they would come to me and rub my back or, you know, do something to help me. And, and really it's a, it, it's such an important skill to learn, um, that it, you know, I think in some sense we're depriving our kids of that development if we're so available that we prevent them from learning how to do it themselves. And we feel like we're being selfless and we are putting our best foot forward as a parent and we're really doing our job when we're responding to them and we're helping them in the night. But I guess that just makes my mind go to what does that do to their sleep? Does that, does, if we are in fact not helping them to sleep through the night, how does that affect them during the day? Because I know if I'm waking up a couple of times during the night, I don't feel nearly as rested and I don't function nearly as well during the day. And I think when we have kids that are having that fragmented sleep too, that we can't underestimate the impact that that those sleep disruptions would have on their days. Absolutely. I mean, younger kids will quickly get into a cycle of overfatigue where the body just almost rejects sleep. Um, so it, they'll start dropping naps, their naps will get shorter, they start protesting more, you start helping more, that deprives them of more sleep, and you get into a terrible cycle. Older kids will just be exhausted, and it, it does. It affects their attention, concentration, their ability to learn and um, incorporate memory, uh, incorporate learning into long-term memory, um, all kinds of things. Plus it makes them more vulnerable to illness. Um, you name it. We don't want our teens on the road, sleep deprived. I mean, there's all kinds of, of repercussions. So it, it creates a habit of waking. Um, and, and, and especially in younger and early school age kids, they will, they will wake up to get time with us if we provide that time. And it sounds horrible to say, oh, you can't have time with me then because as a parent that feels withholding. But in fact, it's us setting boundaries and saying, no, this is time for sleep. It's not time to hang out. You need to protect your sleep. And you, once you learn how to do this, you will do it better than I can do it for you. So in your opinion, it's really about teaching kids to honor their own sleep and teaching ourselves to honor our sleep too. Yes. Okay. So is it the chicken or the egg? So is it that children who children, some children are born easier and they are easier babies and they fall into sleep habits easier and rhythms easier and they tend to be more mild manner as a result? Or is it that some children get into these patterns where they're not sleeping well and as a result, it impacts their mood and it impacts their ability to be soothed? Yes, to both. In fact, there are definitely easier babies and babies that are, that have an easier time self-soothing. We don't know why some babies suck their thumb. Those babies tend to sleep better. It's just easy for them to soothe themselves. Um, and there are, you know, all sorts of other temperamental issues that, that contribute or temperamental features that contribute to good sleep. But that doesn't mean you can't teach 
a different sort of child how to sleep. The vast majority of sleep issues that I see are behavioral and behavioral sleep issues can be addressed no matter what kind of kid you have. And I would argue that if your child is more so-called difficult, it's even more important for you to teach that child how to sleep because the sleep is what's going to help them benefit from everything else going on in their life. If you have a child who has um, particular challenges, whether they're learning challenges or sensory challenges, um, some of those things can actually really make it harder to sleep. But even so, you need to be doing everything you can behaviorally to help that child so that they can they can take advantage of all of the um, therapies that they may need um, or any other kind of um, help that they're getting during the day. So in your experience and in your research, can all t- children be taught to sleep well? <laughs> that I'm, I hesitate to say all because there are always special circumstances. I think all children can be taught to sleep better and the vast, vast majority of children can be taught to sleep well. But, you know, there are all kinds of physical and neurological conditions that impact sleep. Most, most, most children do not have those issues. And most children who do have those issues are in the mild to moderate range and can still be helped and and learn how to sleep very well. But um, there are always those situations where a child has very profound sensory issues or um, significant cognitive delays or motor difficulties or things that that are not related to your average um, behavioral sleep training situation. And those things can, um, can be more challenging. It doesn't mean that it's hopeless, but you know, it, I, I often run across very frustrated parents who have children with special needs who, you know, feel like everyone, everyone assumes they're doing a bad job with sleep. That's just not the case. So what about parents? Can all parents be taught to sleep well? You're giving me these hard questions. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> most so, parents. Yeah, I would say that most parents can learn how to sleep well. It It is a matter of accepting that perhaps your sleep has changed. Once you're responsible for another human being's life, you have a different kind of vigilance um, that remains even when you're unconscious so that typically you wake up more easily, um, you know, and it, it can take some time to trust that you're not going to be awoken or awakened um, at random times in the night. But yes, we can all learn good sleep habits and how to take care of our sleep. It's not going to be perfect every day. No matter if you're a parent or not, sleep is variable um, day to day, just depending on a multitude of factors. But the more accepting we can be of sleep being good enough, um, the easier it is for us. So tell me more about this vigilance. And I, I know that I experienced it. I've never been a heavy sleeper, but I can't say that I'm a su- I was ever a super light sleeper. But now I wake up with every little sound that I hear from my kids and their bedrooms are kind of far away from mine. What What is there research that shows where that comes from? Is that evolutionary? What is that? 
You know, I think I, I don't want to speak to concrete research because I don't have that off the top of my head, but there's definitely research about newborns and a, a symbiosis that happens between a mother's uh, cortisol levels and what's going on with her child. In any case, there there is a biological function that mothers in particular have that is, you know, we're designed to keep our babies alive. And so, of course, we're going to be more susceptible to to waking during the night. I mean, if you think about advances in modern medicine, it has not been that long since babies going to sleep at night has been a safe thing <laughs> to do where you can, you know, you the infant mortality rates have have just dropped through the floor since we've learned so much about how how to how to put babies to bed. We have vaccines. We have all kinds of with prenatal care, um, and so. But biologically, we're a little bit behind in terms of the threat levels that are that are out there for us. So uh, that's a long answer to yes. I do think there's a, a physiological process that makes us lighter sleepers. As moms, it can, you know, I I think that now with a 10 and 13 year old, I'm back to my previous levels of of sleep uh, depth. You know, I'm I'm less likely to just jolt awake for no reason. Um, but certainly, when my child comes to me and says they've thrown up in the night, I pop out of bed and like the house is on fire. So perhaps there is some sort of brain or biological basis in the early days and in the early months, but then maybe it becomes behavioral in the, in the I years do that think follow. That's true. Yes, I think that's a great way to sum it up because it, we do have to relearn how to sleep and settle our, our system down because, you know, again, it's, that's sort of Pavlovian, right? You have a child waking up every couple of hours needing something from you and you, you, that you create that response pattern and to undo it takes some time, um, where you're not getting that cue to wake up. It takes some time to return to normal. But there's hope. So you said you have a 10 and 13 year old. So I guess <laughs> some, that we can look forward to that. Well, yeah, and it doesn't even take 10 years, for goodness sake. I mean, you, it, it, I think it really took me personally until my youngest was, I don't know, 18 months or two. It, it happened a little faster with her um, than it did with the first. It took a little bit longer um, for me to settle down after being a first-time mom. Yes, and I can agree with that. I think everything is a little bit easier to relax around after the second one, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so what, I've heard of this idea of postpartum insomnia. What can you tell me about that? Postpartum insomnia is not um, terrifically common, but it is very intense for people who experience it. Um, so our bodies are really, our sleep is really sensitive to hormonal fluctuations. And I, a lot of, um, women that I see have insomnia just a couple of days before they get their period. And some people have insomnia also when they ovulate, we're very sensitive to fluctuations in estrogen when it comes to sleep. Um, and of course what's happening after you have a baby is, you know, just this incredible tumult of hormonal regulation and, um, you know, if you're breastfeeding, that goes on for, uh, for some time. And then when you stop breastfeeding, your body goes through another adjustment period that 
uh, you know, at least for me, felt like menopause. But um, it, it, you know, these are things that we're not really warned about. And when it happens that you end up not sleeping, it can feel um, crazy. I mean, it, people start to feel like they're going crazy because why on earth would you not be able to sleep when you are so incredibly exhausted? And um, it's, you know, it starts out typically as a hormonal issue and then you start to have the anxiety that comes along with it that, you know, how am I going to function? I, this baby's going to need me in an hour. If I can't sleep now, what's going to happen? And that anxiety sends the body into a fight or flight response, which is designed to keep us awake. Um, there's also, insomnia is also associated with depression and anxiety, both of which are, are common in uh, postpartum moms. So I'm fascinated by the science and biology that are connected to sleep. And I think, as you mentioned, that it's not very well understood. And something that comes to mind is a topic that I've talked about a little bit on the blog, not really on the podcast yet, but there's this idea in motherhood now that women are surviving from coffee until cocktails. So they wake up in the morning and they're drinking coffee to keep them awake all day until it's time for wine. And then they start drinking wine to go to sleep. And can you talk to me a little bit about the impact of caffeine and alcohol and that sort of thing and how that impacts our sleep? Sure. Um, I, I, first of all, don't want to demonize anybody because we also just have to get through. But when it comes to sleep, those two things can have an impact. And it's just important to understand what you're doing if you're making those choices, first of all. Um, so caffeine, um, caffeine while it peps you up and gives you some energy and there are cognitive benefits to having some coffee in the morning, um, it, if you're drinking caffeine throughout the day, it can have an impact on your sleep. It takes longer than you think to metabolize caffeine. And even if you're able to go to sleep, um, with caffeine in your system, it will impact your sleep quality by keeping you out of deeper sleep. Um, Similarly, alcohol uh, keeps you out of deeper sleep. It's a different process, but it, um, it alters what we call the sleep architecture, which means how we flow from light sleep into deep sleep into dreaming sleep. So although alcohol is relaxing um, and it's sedating and helps you fall asleep, it affects your sleep quality so that you do not feel as rested. It's a diuretic so that you're more dehydrated. And it, um, it makes you wake up more frequently uh, because the process of metabolizing alcohol wakes you up. So I have feel like I've had this experience myself and I've talked to other women. I'm now almost in my mid-30s. And I feel like I sleep differently after drinking alcohol now than I did 15 years ago. Does the way that we process alcohol and it, the, the impact it has on our sleep, do you feel like that gets worse as we get older? I do, but I don't have research on that in particular. I would imagine that it it has to do with liver function um, and what we're doing to our bodies and how hard our liver has to work. But um, 
the other the other piece of that is what happens to our sleep as we age. Our sleep does change as we age and it becomes more sensitive to things that didn't used to bother us. So whereas you might have been able to drink coffee, go to sleep and not feel it in the morning um, or drink, go out drinking and drink a, a lot of alcohol and just, you know, have less of a hangover than you have now, a one day versus a two day, maybe, you know, our sleep becomes more sensitive. So we spend, start to spend less time in deep sleep that becomes frustrating and it becomes more important to look to our sleep hygiene to basically clean up our habits so that we're not adding to that effect with substances when, um, when we don't really even understand that that's what's happening. Can you talk to me a little bit more about improving our sleep hygiene? Sure. Um, so sleep hygiene is just a fancy way of saying your sleep habits. And they, it includes things like um, getting up at the same time every day, which is typically not a problem for m- new parents because kids tend to get up early, regardless of what day of the week it is. Um, but Getting up at the same time every day, not making up tremendously for lost sleep. So if, you, if you're if you going to take a nap, keeping it on the short side so that it doesn't interfere with your ability to fall asleep the next night, um, your habits, essentially healthy habits like making sure you're exercising, drinking enough water, um, not drinking alcohol to excess, keeping um, caffeine in check. Um, not smoking, um, eating healthy, not restricting calories too much because wild fluctuations in blood sugar can wreak havoc on your sleep. Um, but also not eating super heavy meals right before bed because that digestion can interfere with sleep. Um, basic healthy stuff. Okay. And what about technology before bedtime? Do you have any rules of thumb on that? So, yes, I try to keep the phone out of the bedroom, if at all possible. Um, You know, I still have a landline, so it's not hard for me to keep my cell phone out and trust that I'll be alerted in emergencies. But um, the the phone next to the bed is a problem because it, it encourages you to continue the business of your day at night. And we need to establish boundaries with technology so that the brain has time to unwind. Um, you want to, I, I mean, I typically advise at least an hour before bed, turning off, um, phones in terms of texting, uh, talking, social media, things like that. And work should end a lot earlier than that. If you can stand to turn all that stuff off earlier, that's even better. Um, and the other piece is if you're watching TV, don't multitask. Like actually watch TV and get the benefit from that relaxation without then being on your phone doing, you know, texting or, or Instagramming or whatever it is that we all are wasting our time doing. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, the other thing I really recommend is, you know, people talk about, you know, in terms of sleep hygiene, having a routine and a bedtime routine is really important, but you don't have to go overboard. It can really just be a few simple um, steps to get you ready for bed. Um, But taking that break after, 
you know, your involvement with your day is really important. Your brain is super active when it's plugged in and you can't just dive into bed and expect it to shut down. The other thing that happens is if that's your first chance to be quiet, then you're going to be flooded with all the thoughts that have been pushed out of your awareness, all the to do's, everything you didn't get done is going to come flooding at you. Um, and so taking some time before you start getting ready for bed to process the day, um, write things down so that you don't have to hold them in your memory, which is already taxed and, um, kind of discharging all of that information from your mind, then moving into a quick routine. And I like to top it all off with reading fiction because I find that that's a really great way to occupy the mind away from all of this other intrusive stuff. And then it lets the body really take over with its natural fatigue and, and get you into a good night's sleep. That flooding that you talk about at bedtime is an interesting concept. I haven't given that really all that much thought, but that I, I can see that happening. I mean, we just don't have moments of quiet and moments of calm and peace during the day, especially when we have young children at home. And you're right. As soon as our head hits the pillow, our our brain goes into overload, which almost makes us want to reach for our phones even more to avoid that overload. To avoid. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's really, I mean, I think that having a, a kind of a parent diary at the end of the day to really just take stock of the day and write down what needs to be done is really important without getting overwhelmed with the minutia of listing, which can also be a problem. But, you know, there has to be some kind of balance where your brain doesn't have to be the vessel for all of that information at all times. Right. I just really want someone to create a bedtime routine for me and to come t take my electronics, tuck me in, <laughs> read me a nice little story and kiss me goodnight. I mean, it just sounds like the, what we do for our kids. It just sounds so beautiful and relaxing for adults. And we don't give ourselves that same luxury. And it really is a luxury. Well, it doesn't have to be because really you only need like 15 minutes. You don't need a bubble bath with scented candles and you don't need a massage or a body scrub. You just need to take a deep breath, be happy to get in your bed, leave your day aside and, and read a good book because that, I mean, reading a good book is, it feels like a luxury. It's doing something really nice for yourself. It seems like it, you know, a treat because it has nothing to do with the business that you're constantly enmeshed in. But particularly as parents, it, you know, it never ends. You have to find a way to step away from that to be able to unwind and go to sleep and doing something nice like that for yourself is, is so important. You get such a, it's it, such value out of those 15 minutes that, you know, it, it really is just so worth it. I completely agree. My husband bought a charging station and put it outside of our room about two months ago. And it's been such an awesome thing. And we put our phones out there, iPads, computers. So everything is out of the room. And I feel like that has been such a game changer for me because I'm definitely guilty of waking up in the night, reaching over for my phone to see what time it is, and then happen to see if I have any new emails. And then 
totally spiraling out of control. So I've that phone out of the room is a huge thing for me. And it, it gives me that little window, that pause before my eyes close. I'm not using technology until I fall asleep at night, which I think is, um, it does have a big impact on sleep too, like you said. And it's interesting that you mentioned a fiction book because my husband has been sort of dragging his feet through a book for like six months. And finally I said to him, I was like, you know, if you're not enjoying this book, just like pick something different. You don't have to finish it. Like, But he was so determined to finish this book that he started. It was a huge book. And he was like, I'm going to make it through. I'm going to make it through. But you're right. And I, I'm going to tell him that. I'm like, you know, it's a luxury. Like this should be this time that you're doing something joyful and something that you are finding fulfilling, not something you feel like you're forcing yourself to do because there are plenty of things all day long that we are forcing ourselves to do. And that time should be spent doing something that you can enjoy and something that helps you relax. Yes. And it should not be self-help books. It really absolutely do yourself a favor. Like the time for self-improvement is not right before you go to bed. That can be done at other times during the day. That's why fiction is really just such so important fiction or I mean biography is fine but you know not the history of the Vietnam War please (laughs) (laughs) and I am so guilty of reading nonfiction books at night so I'm going to keep that in mind and I actually I love reading I I love reading fiction books I tend to veer towards nonfiction books because I feel like it's just I I don't get a ton of time to read so I want to get some impactful information into my brain but I do enjoy fiction so much and I don't give myself enough of an opportunity to to do that to read those books you're what you're saying smacks of like a bit of perfectionism and this idea that you want all of your time to be purposeful and useful and you're it sounds like you're not valuing the the rest part of it the like not not the rest like the entirety but the restful part that's really important the the self-care like yes learning is important and you know we all want to stay informed and we want to stay on top of politics and everything that's going on in the world but we also need to take care of ourselves and i i really think that that last 15 minutes um that you can barely keep your eyes open is it it should be like brushing your teeth. Like you do that to take care of yourself. And this has a purpose too. You can, if you really want to learn about the history of the world, you can do that at other times and you'll find the time to do it. Maybe not this year when your kids are young, but it will happen. You have a whole life. But I, I do find that perfectionism Um, particularly among new moms, because we have so many things we're trying to do well um, and not enough time to do it in that it really creates um, it. It creates a lot of anxiety because we're never living up to our standards and we feel like we're wasting time somehow. You are absolutely right. And I've talked a lot with my audience about this idea of the perfect mom and who she is. And every time I bring it up, I I have them help me define what the perfect mom looks like. And she always looks exactly the same. (laughs) She's always this like thin, energetic, calm, happy, organic food making, garden growing. Like she always looks identical. I I know everyone hates her. (laughs) 
<laughs> she like takes her kids to the grocery store and remains perfectly calm there. And it's just, yeah. And she is this sort of this person that we pine after and we want to be. And, and when we fall short of her, which we always do because she doesn't really exist, then we feel like we're falling short as a person. And we're trying, like you said, to squeeze as much as possible into every waking hour. And as a result, we're losing sleeping hours because we don't have enough of the waking hours. Right, right. And then we start to worry about losing the sleeping hours and then we get even fewer. Yes. And it just, it's a, it's a cycle. It's a vicious cycle. Well, this has been so helpful, Dr. Kennedy. I greatly appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. And I'm going to include a link to your book, The Good Sleeper, which I think is something that you all should check out. It's definitely backed in a lot of research. And anyone that is looking for assistance in improving your baby's sleep habits, I think it's a, it's a wonderful resource. resource. So I'm going to put that in the show notes at simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 98 and along with a link to your website. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kennedy. It's my pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this interview with Dr. Janet Kennedy. You can find her website at nycsleepdoctor.com, and you can find her book on Amazon or in bookstores. It's called The Good Sleeper. I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes at simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 98. If you want to talk more about this topic and about finding mindfulness and calm in family, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash March. That's the topic that we're discussing in the small group for this month. And when you have a moment, please leave a rating or review in iTunes for the show. Your support is greatly appreciated. Have a good one.